The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. Sunday, the 29th of March. The Fujicast. This is the Fujicast Daily Photography Show. Daily because during this time when much of the world is enduring some kind of social distancing, uh, be that early measures of, tail end in some parts, albeit not many, uh, stricter rules about what facets of life can or cannot operate, or or indeed complete lockdown. It's a, a show to give photographers of all abilities, brands of camera, interests or stages of professionalism, a sense of community. So it's daily, I guess, until until further notice. And that until further notice is for many people the unsettling new normal, isn't it? It's a new norm that uh, we hear about a little further today with this weekend's special guest, former Beirut hostage, television producer, writer, journalist and presenter John McCarthy held captive for over five years in Lebanon during the hostage crisis of the 80s and early 90s. Today, he talks about that thing we're all holding out for, coming out at the other end, and those tentative steps into a changed world, hope and an opportunity, which for many people, including myself as a businessman, working as a photographer and filmmaker, opportunity seems a an uncomfortable noun when I'm not anywhere being in charge of throwing the switch that turns the light on at the end of that tunnel. But hopefully you'll find John has a very practical sense of change and indeed hope. New things perhaps will come along out of, out of this current, the current crisis we're going through, whether that's for me, but certainly for other people. But hopefully they will see other things. And most importantly, I hope <coughs> it will be a, you know, a way of thinking, well, we've got through that. I've got through that as an individual. It's brought me closer to somebody or it's made me realise more about myself or about the world. I want to start, though, with uh, a DM I received after yesterday's show from Jamie Vickerston, who uh, works as a travel guide and shoots landscapes as part of his job. Um, Hi, Neil. And, of course, Kev, in brackets. (laughs) Thanks for making the show. Don't forget Kev. He's here usually, yes. Thanks for making the show a daily thing during this time. We'll get the platitudes out of the way first by using what should be a T-shirt now with those three words, yada, yada, yada. You should have merch. Haven't you heard? All the trendy YouTubers and podcasters have merch these days. Anyway, to more serious topic. I was left enthralled by today's episode and John McCarthy's story. I grew up a little after this story, being part of my memorable youth, but it's a name along with Brian Keenan's I knew immediately as I'd seen the film Blind Flight and, of course, seen John interviewed many times. I can, as you said yesterday, draw no comparison with the incarceration that he endured, Uh, yet I'm sure we all have our own levels of feeling about our personal, rather less invasive incarcerations right now. I'm personally living in France at the moment, and my work as a travel guide is all but over, and my landscape passion is also curtailed for the moment. But I still have hope. I started three weeks ago with measures becoming ever stronger in personal isolation, and for the first week or two there was a sense of guilt as I felt an odd euphoria. There was plenty not to be euphoric about, of course, and I was completely aware of the suffering of many, but a quiet had descended upon me that I couldn't quite explain. You've talked of reset... And that's exactly what I've been feeling. That feeling has subsided slightly over the last month as the realisation of being alone with all the practical financial and social challenge that brings. But I could understand how even in the most desperate of times, uh, John McCarthy and Brian Keenan were able to find waves of humour and indeed hope. Looking forward to hearing part two. And from, I think it's Toosie, is it Toosie? South of Paris. Keep the faith, keep the humour and keep the hope. Sincere regards, Salut Jamie. 
Uh, thanks, Jamie, and I hope uh, you are out in one of your Parc Naturals again very, very soon. Thanks for your kind words. Usually on the show, my co-host Kevin Mullins helps do battle with an email bag to answer the tech and non-tech questions you kindly send in. Uh, some Fuji, of course, yes. Um, slight clue in the name. And we're back to normal with that tomorrow. And at weekends, well, I have a chance to hold the tiller. So uh, what with it being a, a slightly different episode... I ask you to send either by email to the show's address, click at fujicast.co.uk, or within the Fujicast Facebook group, messages of what you've been doing to maintain your creativity or business during this time. And as I said yesterday, you delivered. Let's start with Constantis Zimmers. Uh, started macro photography with the Fuji 80mm indoors and in my family's garden. I've seen a, a number of, uh, of macro projects. Um, I'm tempted. It's, it's in the drawer somewhere here to dig out the macro and do some myself. Simon Berry, a pretty wonderful thing happened. I gave my four-year-old a camera and she immediately started documenting. It's been quite an eye-opener. With no taste developed or self-criticism, the results are pure and frank and a lesson for me. Matt Pitts, I'm not at work as my wife is on the vulnerable list. I'd normally be working at an airport repainting aircraft. Around 40% of the workforce is off. Anyways, I've been documenting the time under lockdown with daily images added to my Instagram story. I'm going to make a book or a zine when it's all over. Also, I've just finished my first street photography zine, so I'm keeping busy while still going a little crazy. Streets wide open on Insta if you're interested to look at that one. Uh, Steve Ford. Hi, Neil. Using the time to upskill in several areas, including Photoshop and Premiere. Also updating website and offering help to those looking to update and review their own website. Thank you, Steve, for that offer as well. Uh, Hugh Rawson. Running a school at arm's length and teaching myself how to make videos to keep the school family in touch. I saw one of your videos, Hugh, and I thought it was great. Craig Phillips Latislavek. I hope I've got that right. I'm the site manager at my local primary school and I've been documenting with my camera school life for the very few children less than eight that have been in as well as the skeleton staff over the last week of the lockdown. As with all the uh, head teacher's permission, I might add. Good. Uh, my wife actually is, um, for two days a week, has to, uh, is working at the school where she's been working before all this. And yes, there's not so many children there. And the, and the social distancing measures uh, that she's been describing to me, I, I think the children going through this are absolute troopers. I really, really do. Charlotte Parkinson, I've been documenting our lockdown in images of my autistic brothers who are finding this an especially hard time. We've been trying so hard to keep them happy and entertained. And as you can see by this happy face, it seems to have paid off. You have to see the picture of this. But please go to Instagram at Lottie on Film. Um, Charlotte's put the, the address there. Lottie on Film, if, if anybody's interested. Nick Turpin, friend of the show. Thank you, Nick. Photographing my partner for her daily Instagram. Trying to find different locations around the house and garden. Shooting with the X-T3. Good. Mike Mullaney, I'm doing a family photography course online that's run by another photographer, so helping us both, really. Andrew Higgins, as a grounded pro, now is the time for podcasts and photo books. Here, here, Andrew. My Don McCullen collection, signed, he boasts, in brackets. Mark Selling and Portraits, the wonderful John Downing legacy, a huge influence on the young me. Among many I've got to look through, I also hope to finally read David Hearn and Bill Jays on being a photographer. Uh, Mark Venturini Arturi. I'm hoping I got that one right. Instead of being out photographing, I've been in photographing. There we go. 
short and sweet. There are many other messages. Thank you for them. And um, we will get to them over, over the next week. I've just decided to keep reading these messages out since you were, you were so gracious and generous with them. And so to our guest, John McCarthy, reporter, writer, journalist, presenter, former Beirut hostage, who for five years endured his own isolation at the hands of Islamic Jihad, a group that for most of his captive endurance didn't share any information with him. No news, no glimpse of the outside world, either physically or mentally. Today's second part of this two-parter is about, though, what happened as the ordeal came to an end and how coming out the other side of events where your liberty as you know it is removed brings hope, a word you've heard often associated with these two episodes, of course. Well, imagine, though, if you're anything like me, you've had moments where you found yourself thinking like you haven't seemingly had time to before in our usually congested, diary-dominated worlds. During the, the quiet times... Uh, and, and I can't, can't imagine you, you were speaking all the time to each other. You will, will of course, know the feeling of, of reflection only too well, reflection and quiet only too well. Did that become, I'm trying for this not to sound poetic, but did, did that become some kind of friend too? Yes, uh, it did. And it's, it's really good you bring that up. And I think it's a really important thing that perhaps we can hopefully, uh, you know, think about today because we all live very busy lives. And even someone like me, I'm 63 now, who's fairly Luddite on the uh, you know, modern technology and stuff. But, you know, I like to listen to music and stuff. But I do get carried away, you know, uh, sitting in front of the computer, watching the emails coming in, blah, 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 following the news, obviously. Uh, and, and, and little and, you know, younger generations are sort of constantly buzzing between all sorts of, well, not distractions, they're, they're, they're attractions of social media work, stuff, music. And we so we're very, very busy. So I think, you know, that we, this, there could be a strong and valuable element to this present time when, we're, when, when we can't go out and about, we can't go to school, we can't go to work, to thinking, oh, we can take 10 minutes just to be quiet. Because, yes, you're right. When I was banged up, there was, you know, well, months, effectively, years of just sitting, staring at a blank wall. And that could be very boring and it was lovely that as, as we discussed i had brian to entertain me and share stories yeah. and, and stuff to have him his company and, and the company of other hostages at times too but there were moments when you just thought yes this is staring at the wall often you know it would veer towards getting neurotic getting panicked but you'd be working stuff out using your brain uh to do other, to other stuff and i do remember also just the moment peace again and this was perhaps a, a tranquil moment which you could find in any way um, uh, and, and might still be valuable. But, you know, I remember some, we were in one prison, uh, and it was probably an apartment rather than a, a proper, you know, prison uh, thing, but it was an apartment. But they uh, somewhere in Beirut, and there was this, it was quite a big room Brian and I were in, but there was this a big window, or would have been, but there was this huge metal sheet that was just across it. So there was no natural daylight, except um, if there was a power cut, you could see just the glimmer of light around uh, around this this metal sheet, yeah. and sometimes uh, of a morning when they hadn't the guards hadn't well, they were asleep too in their rooms, um, you know, we, we, the, before and Brahm would be asleep, and I think times when we were with other hostages in that place. Too. Anyway, um, and I would it would just be absolute peace and quiet, but we were in the city in, in Beirut city, but up above because we were in a, in a tower block I think in this apartment, and uh, suddenly as the light came as, as the sun came up the light around this metal, uh, a line of light all the way around this huge metal sheet over the window would come and gradually sort of fill the room with this very gentle glow of light. And I just thought that was the most 
literally peaceful, mm. glorious moment that I could take away from the guards, away from Brian, even away from worry, just this special, beautiful moment. And if I had a fag and smoked in those days, I would sort of light it up and just quietly enjoy that that peaceful smoke. Mm. And then the, you know, then you get the the, the, the classic moment of the cock crowing, etc. And just thinking that's the world out there that you know that I can hang on for. And one day, you know, one will be able to go back for it. So that that was that was sort of one of those sort of moments of tranquility where isolation was actually something that I could revel in, even though it was something I wanted, you know, to be able to go out of, which perhaps at the moment we can do. When Brian was released, you remained for one year. Um, how hard was that? It would have been unbearable, I think, um, had I not had I been left on my own, because we had been at that point on our own sharing cells. Uh, we uh, sort of this is so four years on. We've been together four years, but we'd spent about a year and a bit with some American hostages, and then moved again. And so the last year and a half, I think we we been mainly us but we had had an american with us for a couple of months and he'd been released thank god uh, and then brian went and i think had i been left on my own i would have really struggled you know that sense of being back in in solitary confinement which had been very difficult uh you know right at the start of the of the captive period to, to have done that on my own now tired years later i would have found very difficult even though i had you know the excitement and the uh the, the being buoyed up by the thought that Brian had gone home. That was brilliant. Not only because he was free, which is marvellous, but that might be good for me. And certainly it was good insofar as he could go and meet, you know, meet my family and tell them I was all right and meet see Jill as well. But uh, luckily, I never, I think, I think it was the same day, no, probably the next day, uh, Terry Anderson and Tom Sullivan, two of the Americans we'd been with before, uh, and also who, who were kidnapped a whole year before us as it happened. They, they, they were locked up for six and a half years, both of them. Uh, suddenly appeared in this cell and they were with me. So that was fantastic. And they had, they had a radio. Brian and I hadn't heard any news for years, you know, and they, they had a radio. And so they could tell me, yeah, Brian's definitely been released and what was going on in the Middle East and the world. And, and that was wonderful. So I think, and that was great. So I already knew these guys uh, and they, they were, you know, lovely, lovely men too. Uh, but without Brian, it would have been a real wrench. And I think he, you know, he agonized over whether or not I'd have been, Put with anybody or whether i'd be left on my own and, and therefore in a way the stress of his liberation fell on him i think more than me uh so he, he had a funnily enough you know he was out and about you could see his family go for a pint of guinness or whatever but yeah. i think that was it was diff more difficult for him because he was and i found that when i got out myself uh, a year later uh, with a few months before the other guys came home whilst i could do anything i wanted to and i was back safe at home I was very preoccupied with, you know, mm. were they coming out, even though I was pretty confident they were, but it was still that nagging thing that, what about the other guys? What about the other guys? Do you remember that day of release? You must do. I do. Yes, I do. I do. It was, it was... Because um, you were expecting maybe not to be you. You were thinking it might be Terry Waite or, or one of the others. Well, that's right. We'd, we'd heard on the radio, because at that point it was this guy, Terry Anderson, two Americans, Terry Anderson, Tom Sutherland, and Terry Waite, our fellow Briton, uh, and me, um, <laughs> I'm, Brian, I can't remember if I told you, but uh, uh, Terry Waite and I met in the boot of a car, um, which was That's kind of a weird, weird unusual, way to meet someone. Yeah. Particularly, particularly someone who is a giant, obviously, as we all know, Terry is big. Uh, but lu luckily, I'm not. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have fitted in. But then we spent sort of six or seven months together before I was released. We heard on the radio that a Brit and an American were going to be released, and also that the group holding us, Islamic Jihad, was sending an envoy to uh, to the United Nations, to Perez de Cuellar, the then Secretary General. And um, uh, so we thought that you know that the American would be Terry Anderson, because he'd been held longer than anybody. Uh, and we thought that the 
Brit would not be Terry Waite. We were thinking it would be a guy called Jackie Mann, uh, who we didn't meet in captivity, but who'd been taken by, I think, by the same group of factory, probably, anyway. Um, And he was uh, was in his 80s, I think. He was, you know, retired to live in in Beirut, and he'd been a a Spitfire pilot in World War II. So we assumed uh, that that they would release him, just obviously because he was a much older fella, and that would be the sort of decent thing to do. Anyway, it turned out that it was another American that we'd never come across who was released rather than Terry Anderson. And me, I was released because they wanted me to be the, for whatever reason, they wanted me to be the envoy to go Mm. to the United Nations. So yes, it was a real surprise. And I had a briefing the night before my release from the leaders of uh, Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah, which which they were part of, um, as far as we know, as to what they wanted me to do, and that this letter I was to take to Paris to Quare, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so the, the day of the release was constant countdown to whether, you know, thinking, will this happen? Will this happen? And they'd given me a watch, which I hadn't had, for, you know, hadn't had for a watch for five and a bit years. Yeah. And suddenly I got this watch, and I was like, you know, a kid with a new watch just staring at it all the time, uh, but desperately thinking, you know, they said, I don't know what, 11 o'clock in the morning I'd be released, and now it's 10.30, 10.45, it's 11. Oh, my God, it's 11.15, it's 11.30. What, is it all gone wrong? And then I was taken out and taken downstairs from this apartment when I hadn't been chained up. You know, I'd just been, uh, I think I had to have a blindfold on, but that was all. But but no, no guards or anything around. I was sort of very relaxed because I was going home. Uh, and then uh, and then in the boot of a car again and waiting and waiting. The lid opened. Oh God! This is you know this is this is going to are they going to be taking me out again? But it wasn't. It was just to, to give me the letter to take to the secretary general, and uh, and then the car took off. And a little while later, I was handed over to the Syrians who were largely in control of Beirut still in those days, um, uh, an intelligence general, general in military intelligence, and then whisked over to mm. well, driven over to Damascus, where an hour or two later, I met my my dad and brother, and that was just. You know, incredible, really, and then flew home. Coming out for you then into this world, a very, very new place. Now, even many, that's now their primary thought. Again, you know, this can't be eggs for eggs, I know, but being inside is one thing. Wanting normality to return is another, and and that normality will, will mean so many different things. I think, John, for for different people after this, relationships, mental health, uh, physical health, of course, financial. How, how, I mean, obviously, for you, it played out in a particular way when your incarceration ended and how do you think that'll play out for many people well i think i hope it'll play out that a there'll just be the sense of relief of you know thank god we're all through that and and probably as a society i hope we you know we will have learned a lot you know not only that we we need you know tragically but you know to be prepared not just for nuclear war but for this rather more you know in you know global suddenly devastating uh, experience of, 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 of a virus that can, can race around the world and, be, and devastate communities um, uh, and families so, so, so grotesquely and effectively. So hopefully we'll look at that and think, right, okay, maybe we should be putting our, you know, uh, resources perhaps more into, I don't know, things like ventilators and all that stuff and, yeah. and how, we, how we can protect and, and, and deal with such a situation in the future because uh, it's more likely really than any of us being stupid enough to press the, the nuclear button mm. so that on that that's a big scale but i think individually hopefully people will find that whilst it may not be the same but there will be different things that either they've been learning uh while they've been uh, you know under lockdown or in, in isolation uh that they can do different things or that they've seen learned about themselves and about the world that they can see it in a different way so that there are new opportunities you know and i think because when i came home i was very anxious <clears throat> 
uh, I'd heard on the radio that there'd been this big campaign led, led, led by Jill Morrell uh, for, for me and the, and the other hostages, mm. you know, campaigning to keep our names in, in the headlines, so to speak, and hopefully get something done for us. So I was aware, aware of that, but I wasn't aware how famous I was briefly, you know, well, for a couple of years when I came back. Um, so that, that was a shock. But I had thought, you know, well, my career as a journalist must be over because I'd been so out of touch. And I wasn't aware of the technological advances even then. Nothing compared to what we have now, but even the developments then that I thought, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just be left behind. Yeah. But luckily for me, there were all other options, you know, writing a book about the experience uh, of captivity with Jill, who was writing about the campaigning experience, obviously. So that was something I hadn't expected. And writing has continued, you know, books has been uh, continued to be uh, an important part of my working life. I went back into journalism, but not in a newsroom as, a, as more as a producer character, as I had done, but, you know, as a presenter of radio and TV programs. And that's taken me all over the world. So I've been really lucky that these things have happened. And then doing public speaking about, you know, as I was saying earlier, about whether that might be to conferences about bullying, et cetera, et cetera, or more general conferences about just about the experience. So all these things, which I've never dreamt of, have come along. So I've been very lucky. But hopefully... Um, and now, you know, new, new, new things perhaps will come along out of out of this current, the current crisis we're going through. Whether that's for me, but certainly for other people, that hopefully they will see other things. And most importantly, I hope <laughs> it will be a, you know a way of thinking. Well, we've got through that. I've got through that as an individual. It's brought me closer to somebody, or it's made me realise more about myself or about the world. And so I would like to do that. So who knows what's going to happen? But I do hope that it'll it, you know people will come out. And that rather than it just being, oh, my God, that world is over, that they either they people will find out within themselves or we can all help each other along to find you know, other and new paths that we can you know, enjoy and will be, um, will be ful- fulfilling for all of us. Well, I've got one last question. 1,943 days. Are you resentful at all? Um, no. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's easy to sort of say that, uh, and particularly... Uh, given what you just said, insofar as I'm not resentful because you know I've had a a great life since then. I am. I'll come back to that, but I mean I am angry because um, my mum died while I was locked up. I knew she just had a recurrence of um, of cancer when I when I was kidnapped uh, and was worried about that. And you know she apparently she fought it valiantly, but she died a, a couple of years before I I came home, and I I didn't know about that for a year. Um, I, in fact, I didn't know about that until just. Brian's release yeah. and I met up with the Americans. So that was very difficult. Um, and but I was I'm very angry. Sorry, the point being, I wasn't exactly bitter. About it. I was angry that they the the, you know, the kidnappers knew this because it was on the news. And she made an appeal, and my dad made an appeal when she got very sick for information, let alone obviously my release, ideally. Uh, and they didn't they didn't do that. They didn't just come in and take a photograph of me and say, "Look, we can't release him." Uh, but here he is alive. And that would have been obviously given a great comfort because, it, it, you know, we didn't have any news of the outside world at all, Brian and I, for most of that time until we got a radio. Uh, and, um, and and back home, they had no news of us at all. They simply didn't know for most of the time uh, until just before Brian's release, I think, they that they um, that we were alive even. You know, there was no definite confirmation of that. So so that that, that angers me and that, that, that sort of callousness still seems stupid and uh, unnecessary uh, and horrible that my mum and, and dad, of course, and brother at that time had to suffer like that. Um, but in terms of bitter, no, I, I don't. I don't feel bitter. I think. I think it's it's a kind of a glib answer. But if I was feeling bitter, um, you know, then I'd in some way still be a hostage. And uh, you know, I've been back to Lebanon many times since uh, since my 
those captive years working on various journalistic projects and stuff and um, i met some of the people who were probably involved with it all uh, and lots of other people too and they're they, they have no desire to hold me you know they've moved on and hopefully obviously they've been through various wars and stuff since then but hopefully uh, you know their lives prospered and they were able to to carry on in in in, in peacetime in a normal way so i don't wouldn't want to feel bitter about it because I would still be still be locked up there, and I, and I think the, the the fact that I've still got you know I got the, I've been talking about doing interesting work that came out of it, the writing, j- journalism, TV, the speaking, etc. But also, mo- you know, very importantly, a whole raft of friends, not just those immediate hostages of Terry Waite, Terry Anderson, and especially Bry, but you know, um, I've got them, but also other people I've met because of it, uh, because of that in the aftermath. So, so it, there's. You know, one can look back and, and, and shudder sometimes at, at the at sudden memories of, of a particularly grim period, maybe a brutal period or just a lonely period or a dark period, an uncomfortable period. But at the same time, one can look to the those, the brighter moments within captivity and certainly all the brighter moments of my life before and, and certainly since. My thanks to John McCarthy for his time. It's been a privilege to talk with him. And, of course, I hope the parallels drawn at times have been useful for those of us, and I'll include myself, trying to unpick our feelings as we navigate these truly unusual and extraordinary events and times. Uh, These days, John still talks of his time spent in Beirut to audiences internationally on a number of nuanced subjects related to his captivity, be that solitude, uh, bullying, and, and the subjects that we've, of course, covered. I'll leave an address in the show notes that you can find on the website fujicast.co.uk as to how you can contact his organisation. And of course, you'll find that within your app show notes too. There's a book he wrote with former partner and tireless campaigner for his release, Jill Morrell, called Some Other Rainbow. And there's another book called Between Extremes, A Journey Beyond Imagination, which he wrote with his cellmate Brian Keenan. And uh, this one's interesting, as it documents a journey they physically made to Chile many years after their release. Pertinent, as when they were held, they often delved deep into their imaginations and, and described the journeys they might make one day and places they might visit when everything returned to normal. And I'll leave you today with that word that I hesitated about, normal. Never as normal sounded such an exciting, exhilarating and promise-filled word. Music this weekend from Blue Wednesday with supporting themes from the brilliant artlist.io. Back with Kevin tomorrow. The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production.